the opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Jeremy Hinks and Stinky Jazz Podcast and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else on this planet. Hello, everybody. Good day and welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm your host, Jeremy Hinks, the man of a million musical opinions, all of which happen to be correct. This week, we have the one and only uh, author of, uh, well, author in pop culture and just uh, social commentator in general from his home base in San Francisco, California, James Dean Boltman. Author of a book called An American Feast, and we'll be covering some highlights of that. Uh, Jim Boldman is, uh, well, he's got quite a story to tell. He had seen the Beatles, he was at the largest mass arrest in American history. He was also uh, at the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King, and he experienced so many other things around the pop culture and just America in general. So, we're gonna Kick this off with, believe it or not, uh, for what it's worth, just because it seems to really fit the vibe of this book. So let's all sit back and do the sticky jazz. There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody, look what's going down. There's bad lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat in the street singing songs and they're carrying signs mostly say hooray for our side it's time we stop hey what's that sound everybody look what's going Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm Jeremy Hanks, and this week I have with me out of San Francisco, Jim Boldman. 
Uh, Boldman is an author uh, and San Francisco historian who has seen and done quite a lot. And he, he's just published a book called The American Feast. And uh, that's got some amazing stories to tell. Welcome, Jim. How are you today? Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Uh, we're, we're good. Glad we could line this up. I, I, I just got to say, I started reading the book and thought, I got I to gotta put this guy on the show. It was such an amazing mix of the culture and the stories there and you go back really far and you've been to some very historical well, you know, moments. I, I, I am old so i guess i do go back pretty far uh, uh and and by the way that's an american feast not the... an, yes an american feast and uh, yeah. I, I got my copy on amazon from your cousin he gave me a digital copy and mm-hmm. uh uh, that was when I read it and said, I got to talk to this guy. And so it's the, uh, it's the, it's a great story, you know, where you just, you, you, you switch back and forth cause you're, you're not doing specifically a timeline, but you cover some amazing pieces of, of history and wonderful, wonderful points of the culture there. So, um, well, you know, these are pretty much watershed uh, events uh, of my generation, you know, starting uh, with my upbringing in Washington, D.C. during, uh, you know, the Vietnam era. And, uh, you know, that's why the book opens at a uh, Vietnam protest uh, in Washington. Uh which was, as you said, the largest mass arrest in U.S. history, right? There were 12,000 of them. It, it was, you know, which included me. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, but, uh, so do you want to read that? That uh, Let's see. Why don't you pick one of the, the sections that, I, that I, I wanted you to just pick up and, and read there? You have some amazing pieces in there. I love your writing style. I love your voice. So if you want to take one of those that I asked you to read, let's, let's okay, have you do well, that and we'll, we'll talk about it. Why don't we start at the beginning and I'll, I'll, I'll read uh, the beginning of the book. Fire away. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. 1971. The acid was finally kicking in and I had no idea what I'd done with my clothes. I hadn't thought so far ahead to realize I'd need them to get home and I was now completely naked, smack dab in the middle of Washington, D.C.'s Lincoln Memorial reflecting pool. I looked down the expanse over the sea of hippies and then up at the memorial and noticed that Abraham Lincoln and the marble structure that housed him now seemed entirely composed of countless writhing maggots. Marijuana, tear gas, and revolution were in the air, and three angry cops wearing gas masks and swinging riot batons were coming for me. Childlike and innocent, strangely at peace yet terrified, my mind raced with every emotion. I backed away, splashing through the water that was up to my knees, almost making a game of it. The one that was closest to me seemed the immediate threat. I watched him slipping and falling into the water. His frustration and mounting anger were now evident. It seemed ludicrous to me that he somehow intended to take my freedom, as if one human should hold that power over another simply because he wore a badge, a badge that now seemed to be melting before my eyes, 
like a candle that burned too hot, dripping profusely down his front. And I knew if I waited that out, he'd have no more authority. So I kept my eyes focused on that badge as I danced away from him, from him, smiling, amused at his anger. 12,000 of us were arrested that day, the largest mass arrest in U.S. history. And the irony wasn't lost on me that I was tear-gassed, tackled, beaten, and arrested in the shadow of two monuments that had been erected to celebrate freedom. You see, there were two revolutions going on at that time, one that involved the most oppressed of our people, the poor and black of the inner cities, in a race war that centered upon equal rights and dignity. That revolution was on their own turf, affecting them directly. But the other revolution for the more untouchable and coddled of us was over a remote war that was 9,000 miles away. Sure, I cared about and supported their fight, but this one was more my style. After all, I came armed with a factory-installed, semi-affluent, upper-middle-class mindset that told me that nothing could hurt me. I cared about this cause, but honestly speaking, I was mostly there for the party. How exactly did I become a member in good standing in the spoiled white revolt? I'll get to that. Uh, the great Mark Twain once said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I feel the same way. It won't do any good to call me a liar any more than he was, for I am a storyteller, and that is something born of circular embellishment. I'll only say this, that this is my story as I remember it, but one that is impossible to tell without telling a bigger story through which it is irre irretrievably entwined, entangled, and filtered. And that is the story of America, my America. And that is a sordid tale of poisons that seep in through the cracks, of shattered dreams and broken promises. It is the story of patriots, and it is the story of traitors, sinners and saints, ordinary people that just try to do the right thing to make a difference in small ways against impossible odds while watching helplessly as America went completely off the rails, like struggling to bail water from the hull of a sinking Titanic with just a thimble. It is because of them that this book is ultimately about hope. On May 1st, 1971, I extended my arms, one hand holding a U.S. Marine Corps Zippo lighter that had belonged to my war hero father, and the other holding a little paper card through the big iron fence separating me from the south lawn of the White House. I set fire to my draft card, holding it aloft, hoping the president would see it burning. I dropped it, and it fluttered down in flames right onto Richard Nixon's lawn. It turns out that Nixon hadn't even been there, but he was still calling the shots, calling them from the relative safety and solitude of his home in San Clemente, California. We just assumed he was at the White House. After torching my card, I then stepped back and disappeared into the rabble of angry hippies. When you are one of a crowd of 30,000, a number that would grow larger over the next two days, there is some safety in numbers. I made my way across the ellipse towards West Potomac Park, where many of us would camp for the night, and where there was a stage set up with planned musical performances and speakers 
having grown up in Washington during the 60s and being the right age with the right sensibilities, I'd been involved in many smaller anti-war demonstrations, but this one was the mother of them all. This was the May Day demonstration organized by Rennie Davis, one of the Chicago Seven, and his organization, the War Resisters League, and the Youth International Party, the Yippies, the more militant prankster faction of the movement. This was to be one big rodeo. We were all there for the largest act of peaceful, nonviolent demonstration or disobedience in U.S. history, and the plan was to shut down Washington. If the government wouldn't stop the war, we were going to disrupt the city, blockade all the bridges and traffic circles, making it impossible for the government to function. In response, Army troop transports flew in from all over the East Coast, and soon there were soldiers lining both sides of every bridge coming into the city and guarding every major intersection around Capitol Hill. President Nixon watched from the safety of San Clemente, 3,000 miles away. U.S. Marines in helicopters, one after another, 30 per hour, landed on the grounds of the Washington Monument to augment the completely overwhelmed Capitol Police and help to contain us. Nixon, from his distant perch, had already given the order to have the permit to assemble revoked an hour before. And the fact that the music of the, of the era was a galvanizing force in this, the anti, anti-war effort, just as, just as it has been in the civil rights movement, was not lost on the administration. On the stage, Rennie Davis had just given an incendiary speech and introduced Joan Baez, who spoke briefly and then performed one of her poignant anti-war songs. And then she brought out Bob Dylan for three songs. By then, low-flying helicopters were swooping in over us, and the Yippies, in response, began to release hundreds of helium-filled weather balloons with long tethers sure to snarl the rotors to foil them. At that point, Nixon ordered the power to the cut to the main stage, and by now a phalanx of soldiers, National Guardsmen, and police in riot gear had surrounded us and were poised to strike, but they'd wait until morning. I'd been up all night. I knew they'd be coming, but at the first light of morning, I took my first hit of acid anyway. One hour later, I decided it just wasn't working, so I took two more hits, more or less, and that is when all hell broke loose. Suddenly, without warning, we were under attack. Capitol Police, U.S. Army soldiers, and National Guardsmen, hundreds of them swept in all at once, tearing down tents of sleeping protesters destroying the stage and chasing us out of West Potomac Park. Bounded by the Potomac River on one side, there was nowhere to go except across Independence Avenue towards the Lincoln Memorial and the Reflecting Pool. And that was where they contained and surrounded us. We were collectively both too stoned and idealistic to realize the party was over. So while they were bringing in dozens upon dozens of buses to take us away, we did what any large group of hippies would do. We partied until they came for us. We were all taken to a large football field next to D.C. Stadium, where they set up eight-foot fencing all around. And as the D.C. jails weren't quite big enough to hold everybody, it was my first arrest, but it wouldn't be my last. 
I would work with the Yippies 20 years later in San Francisco. But I'll get to that too. Bravo. What a chapter. What a great way to open a book. Telling, I mean, that was a monumental event in American history. Uh, it, it went down as one of Nixon's bigger guffaws, obviously. I mean, he had worse, but uh, there, you know, you had Bob Dylan, you had, you know, Joan Baez up there doing that. I mean, this was legendary. I remember hearing about this, but only in the history books. And here, here you are telling it firsthand because you were there. And I, I was just enamored with that chapter, just reading that. Uh, that was what made it a page turner. You know, you have a similar voice all through it, which I just found amazing. It, it just kept me going. And uh, but to see, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people had seen Joan Baez and Bob Dylan over the years, but not like that, not in a moment like that. So, well, you know, they weren't about to let Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Young take the stage, and that was who was lined up next. Uh, you know, Crosby, Sills, and Nash had a song out in response to uh, Kent State called Ohio, mm -hmm. uh, a song that mentions Nixon by name, and they weren't about to let them take the stage. And that was who was coming on after Dylan. So uh, historically, that was, you know, free speech was crushed under under no particular threat to the, the peace or the safety of everybody else there. And it was just the ego of some megalomaniac bastard who who just was so afraid of looking bad in front of the world by allowing a protest that size to to say what they were going to say. You know, he knew what you guys were going to say and uh, he just wasn't going to have that. Sounds like, you know, similar to what we have today. Right. It was. Uh, um, it, it, it reminded me of a time when Donald Trump complained about people protesting while they were driving his limo through a part of D.C. And he said, why, why, why are they allowed to do that? They said, Mr. President, that's your constitutional right. And he said, well, I don't like it. You know, <laughs> just Nixon said that how many years ago and Trump said it again. So, well, you know, this was huge back then because it was really the first time there was there were big protests uh, in front of the White House. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, you know, I haven't seen anything that compares to 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 that in modern times. But uh, you know, there's a lot to be angry about. Do you do you feel like much has changed since then? In in the layout of I I personally I see we're we're fighting so many of the same battles for for civil rights for equal treatment of of you know people of color and minorities lgbtq you know that that has obviously come to the front more of the last several years but uh i i we're still fighting these battles after how many you know decades we are. at this point we are we, we still haven't attained martin luther king's dream have we no which is an embarrassment to like you said this the america that's been you know the poison seeping through the cracks that's still happening people are still you know, I mean, I, it, it the same idea when uh, I saw the picture of the guy who had breached the Capitol, you know, the one who had Camp Auschwitz on his sweatshirt. And then the other guy had the one that said SMWE, six million wasn't enough, you know, and those guys thinking that they were serving the president's interest and the country's interest by by trying to take over the the Capitol and, and kill our leaders. You know, it was just. 
absurd to think that we've come to that because n- nothing like that would have happened in your day. You know, at, at this moment, nobody was trying to be violent to do something like that. But you were you're trying to get that point across. And now this day and age, look at the circus we're in, you know. Well, you know, my generation thought they were changing the world. And I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if uh, things would be where they are now without my generation. I, I think we definitely started a conversation uh, that unfortunately is still going on. But, uh, yeah, there, I think, you know, there's a, a lot to be angry about still, and we're seeing it. I also think that, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at another election, unfortunately, in another three years. Uh, it's going to be Donald Trump against, uh, yeah. But like, I, I think it's funny because they came in and then they arrested all of you like that. And you were all being peaceful, uh, when they were trying to take the Capitol, I just, the dichotomy, just, just the, the juxtaposition of it, because those guys were being violent. They were screaming. They wanted to kill people. They had brought a, a mock gallows all of that, but they've only arrested a handful of people compared to the thousands that were there, you know, as as they were trying to, you know, I mean, that was clearly something that should have required the national guard being brought out in helicopters, you know, and unfortunately the president was not going to have any intercession by the the military, you know, so that was, uh, or the police, he, he left them all there to, you know, to, he, he really wanted it to be much worse than what happened. And it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's just crazy that we're, we're that much further behind now. Um, how, so looking at that, how long were you guys in jail actually? And you, you did, did you end up facing charges or, uh, where, where did that actually no, go? No, you know, nothing, nothing serious, but, uh, it was worse than, worse than that. Uh, you know, I'd been arrested naked, you know, being one of those pot-smoking hippies and naked in the middle of the reflecting pool. And my father, who was like a big war hero stationed at Marine Corps headquarters, uh, he had to come get me out of jail. And Naked? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dad, can you bring pleased. some clothes with while you're at it? Yeah. Yeah, he was not pleased. But, uh, yeah, so. Uh, what is one of the other moments in the book where I, I saw it with dread, my jaw dropped when you, when you were there talking about being on, being on acid and then the door opened up and you were like, wait, it's dad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, I hadn't seen him in a while. Cause you know, I ran away and I ran away to, to the hate Ashbury in San Francisco and uh, didn't think he was going to come looking for me. And he found you. There you were. Somehow he yeah. tracked you down. And yeah, uh, he did. But uh, so talk about just just give a quick little synopsis of how you when you got out of that cab in San Francisco. I love the story. I love because I I did something similar to that in Paris. I just didn't have weed to trade, and I probably would have ended up in jail had I been had I done that. But yeah, that, that was so funny. How in your just a few moments you had lined up a life in San Francisco. Well, you know, I mean, how I got to San Francisco is, uh, ironically by joining the, uh, U S military, uh, even though I burned my draft card and dropped it through the fence onto Nixon's lawn, that didn't mean that they weren't going to draft me. And when the letter came from, uh, you know, the draft board, 
you know, I, I knew what it was. They were, they were going to send me to Vietnam. And so I didn't even open the letter. You know, I stashed it under my mattress so my mother wouldn't find it. And, uh, and I went down and within an hour of receiving that letter, I joined the Air Force with a no combat guarantee. And, uh, you know, and they gave me like a year before I had to show up. And, you know, at, at that age, a year seems like a lifetime. You know, so I, I signed the papers and, you know, and just partied for the next year. But then I had to go into, into the Air Force and uh, <clears throat> I, got, I got sent to uh, Guam where they, they, they trained me to be an air traffic controller. And, uh, you know, but I wasn't in the war. Sure, sure. As an air traffic controller, I was sending B-52s off to bomb Cambodia. But, you know, I had a house out in the jungle and, you know, you know, I had such a good time. And I, I made a fortune selling Thai marijuana that I was buying cheaply from the Navy guys and selling, you know, uh, to, to the Air Force guys. And it struck me that the way to get out of the service in a way that I would never again be drafted or have any obligation was to go to an Air Force psychiatrist and tell him I'd taken LSD. At that point, they would no longer allow me to control their airplanes because, you know, they're afraid of flashbacks. And I was out, did, did, out did, of, they, did they even ask you about drug use when you joined up? Uh, I don't remember. Probably. I probably lied, you know, but, but, uh, there I was, uh, at an Air Force psychiatrist and, and I, you know, I told him I'd taken LSD and that was enough to get me, I was out, out of the service within two weeks. And I flipped a coin. I was on Guam. I flipped a coin. I was either going to San Francisco or Sydney. I'd never been to either place, but they they both appealed to me from what I knew about them, you know. And you know, the coin the coin came up tails, San Francisco, and at that point, I knew I was going to the Haight Ashbury. Uh, so I invested all the money I had in in Thai marijuana and packed sixty pounds of it into a duffel bag. And I flew military transport to Honolulu. And from there, I flew commercial to SFO with 60 pounds of contraband in, in the cargo hold. And, you know, I, I, I didn't, it didn't even dawn on me yet that I was going to have to go through customs. And the, the reason for that was I flew a commercial flight from Honolulu, uh, a flight that originated in China. And everyone on the plane was going to have to go through customs. So there I am at uh, San Francisco International Airport with a duffel bag with 60 pounds of opiated Thai marijuana. And, uh, and I'm looking around, you know, just terrified. I'm looking around for what they called an amnesty box, you know, a receptacle into which you could just throw anything you didn't want to take through customs. No questions asked. And, and there wasn't one. So I'm getting herded towards these customs guys. 
uh, you know, and they, they look big and mean and no nonsense uh, kind of officials. And, uh, and they got to me, this uh, yeah, guy that was just drenched in sweat, and they just searched me from top to bottom and tore apart my suitcase, my military duffel bag containing the contraband. They just threw it on the conveyor belt. And I had the feeling that they were ex-military guys recognizing a military bag and just giving it a pass. And I sailed through customs uh, <laughs> and came out of that airport just, you know, I mean, I was convinced I was going to prison for a long time. And I made it so, through so you and walked out, stepped out a into the light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I see this line of taxis and I walked down the line of taxis looking for uh, the right cab driver, one that looked like a pothead stoner. <laughs> and I, you know, bent down and he rolled his window down and, and I said, uh, I've got some really exotic marijuana. Will you take me to the Haight-Ashbury? And I traded him some of it for a ride to the, you know, the world famous Haight-Ashbury. And, uh, you know, I got there and he dumped me out on the street. And within one hour, I had a place to live, even though I had no money. Uh, you know, I met this, uh, this hippie uh, and, you know, you know, I told him that I just gotten there. He goes, oh, you need a place to live. Come with me, brother. And I said, okay. And he took me across the street into this big Victorian building in, you know, San Francisco. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, everybody was my age and everybody looked cool. And uh, he took me across the street to this big Victorian building that was run by a commune of gay, radical fairy hippies um, you know, men with long hair and beards wearing evening dresses. <laughs> and, and they rented me an apartment, even though I had no money, and they didn't know that I had the, the uh, contraband either. Uh, they rented me this apartment for $160 total to move in, which I didn't have. And I said, yeah, I'll take it. I'll be right back with the money. And I went out on 8th Street to intending to try to sell some of that weed. But, I, you know, I was terrified because I had everything with me in that duffel bag. And if I'd gotten busted, you know, game over. And before I could even think about selling any, I met this. Uh, I, I started asking people who were, you know, anyone interesting that walked by me, which was like most, you know, 90 percent of the people were interesting. I, 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 something possessed me and I started saying, do you need a place to live? Do you need a place to, you know, and within four or five minutes, I found this, uh, this kid who was like a, a black punk rock drummer who was living in his van and he had $160. And I said, come with me, man. We're, we're moving in with hippies. And he did. And, uh, and who no, did he end up being? Who who did that guy end up being? Well, while we lived together in several different houses uh, in the Haight-Ashbury. Well, what was his name? The, well, his name was Darren. 
<laughs> but uh, he would change his name to D.H. Poligro. And while we lived together, he became the drummer for the Dead Kennedys. Bravo. What a, what a and, move, man. What a serendipitous experience. Yeah. And, he he uh, went on to play with uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He, um, did, he did play. He was with the Chili Peppers for a while, but he's still with the Dead Kennedys. Uh, you know, 40 years later, they still, you know, pre-COVID anyway, they, they still tour the world, you know, sold out everywhere. Japan, New Zealand, you know, Brazil, everywhere, sold out shows. Um. Yeah, he's he's no he's no longer living in his van. Right. <laughs> Good. Deal. So yeah. I I love that story. You know, I, I'm a Dead Kennedys fan since 1987 when I got a hold of their uh, record "In God We Trust Incorporated," and I mean, oh, I've yeah. been listening to uh, a lot of the European punk, Generation X, The Clash, The Sex Pistols, yeah. but then I see them. They're this American punk band. No mohawks. They're they're not trashy looking. They were just guys in regular flannel or t-shirts, whatever. Yeah. But they had a black drummer, which is cool because you know the England side of things didn't have any black people in the punk. So that was really neat to see. But I've I've been a fan of DK ever since. You know, Jello, East Bay Ray, Klaus Fluoride. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, my my favorite album is still Bedtime for Democracy. You know. Okay. So, uh, I mean, Nazi punks fuck off. That's like been that that's the mantra in the anarchist world. I, you know, every anarchist, be they conservative or left wing, Nazi punks fuck off is always one of the yeah. one of anarchist. Well, anthems, you know, you know? We, we lived together for a few years before he got before he got tapped to join the Dead Kennedys. And he was in these little garage bands, you know, punk bands, but, you know, garage bands, uh, uh, he was in a band called the Speed Boys, and he was in a band called SSI. Uh, and uh, but he and I would take construction gigs. We we started working for the hippies, doing uh, you know we were painting their buildings, and you know hanging off of uh, you know ropes and pulleys, uh, what they called uh, swing stages, <laughs> and and we started. Uh, taking on freelance construction gigs in the south of market part of San Francisco, which is like the gay ghetto. And we were building uh, dungeons, uh, glory holes and, you know, slings and restraints. And, you know, uh, it was a real eye opener. Uh, we, you know, he and I still joke about it, uh, but uh, yeah, what a time that was. Oh yeah. I, I mean, just the, to hear it, I mean, reading it in the book was was funny, but then to hear you tell the story like that, you know, it just it's it it I I had to laugh again. Um, there were so many amazing pieces of San Francisco that you know you caught at exactly the right moment that were wonderful. Um, talk about the club that you were in, and the, well, the club you that know, you took, ended up working, the comedy clubs there. Yeah, I took my first job. Uh, actually, I was starting to explore the Haight-Ashbury, and, and, uh, and, you know, back then they used to put uh, paper flyers up on telephone poles for, like, you know, shows. And I saw this uh, this comedy show that was going to be at a place called The Grove on, on Haight Street, 
and it, it had this uh, fire sign theater kind of vibe. Uh, they were called Duck's Breath Mystery Theater. And, uh, and you know, it was like uh, just absurd sketch comedy with a lefty uh, sensibility that, that really appealed to me. And so I went to see that show. Um, and I was taken with this one performer that opened the show, a woman named Jane Dornacker. Uh, but, I, but I loved the show and, and I ended up leaving San Francisco for about a year, year and a half, and then hitchhiking back here. I, I went back East, uh, you know, uh, because of my family, uh, kind of, <laughs> doing an intervention on me to get me out of the, the hippie, uh, hippie ghetto. Um, it, but I, but I wasn't happy there and I needed to be in San Francisco. So I hitchhiked back and, and resumed living with Darren, uh, DH. Um, and I saw another flyer up on another telephone pole when I got back and the woman that I enjoyed seeing uh, at that first comedy show was going to be performing at another venue uh, just a few blocks away. So I went and, and I totally uh, dug everything about the place and the show. And, and I decided I wanted to work there. I thought they were doing something groundbreaking. And uh, I lucked out. I, I lied about having any experience and, and got myself hired uh, as a manager. Uh, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm putting people on stage. And uh, it, it was just an incredible time. They, they started operating uh, after I got there as a comedy club full time. And all these comics came out of the woodwork uh, in, you know, including uh, Dana Carvey and Whoopi Goldberg and Robin Williams and, you know, Paula Poundstone. And, you know, those were the people I was putting on stage uh, for the next few years and, and getting to know. Um, and then Robin got famous overnight uh, from a show called Mork and Mindy that was actually a Happy Days spinoff. Uh, he'd, he'd been on, uh, he had like a one shot appearance on happy days playing an alien and it was so successful that they gave him his own show. And the rest uh, of, history, of the genius yeah. of Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. So Robin got famous overnight. Uh, and I, you know, I knew Robin when he had roommates, um, you know, before, before he was famous, and uh, and and when Robin got famous overnight, suddenly and continued to live in San Francisco, suddenly we were the club where you could catch Robin Williams, you know, by who by then they were calling, you know, the super comic. And uh, so crowds started to come and the place was, you know, the place only held 49 people legally, according to the fire department code. We were putting 250, 300 people in there, uh, you know, because it was Robin. And there'd be people lined up around the block trying to get in to see Robin Williams. But we had all these other great comics, too. Um, 
but uh well talk, you know, talk uh, about robin the, the the favorite line where where he made off with your uh, piece of clothing tell that quick one oh that you genius. know robin would come in all the time and and uh you know by then cocaine cocaine had exploded like like an atomic bomb uh, everywhere but uh you know, if, if you worked in a club, it was there every night. And, you know, we had a doorman that was selling Coke. And even if Robin didn't want to go on, he would come in to, like, you know, find cocaine. And, uh, you know, we were happy to oblige. And he would usually go on because by then people knew him and the audience sees him walk in. You know, he's got to go on. And, uh, and he would not disappoint him. And uh, one night he came in and I was back in the office. Uh, you know, I had taken the money from the doorman. We were, you know, we were charging like a buck or two for people to get in. Uh, and the doorman would collect the money. And, and I, at a certain point when, when the place was just packed, when it was full and no one else was coming, I would take the doorman's box of money and take it back in the office and I would divide it up and make envelopes of cash for, for the usually three comics that were on that night. Um, you know, the headliner, the middle act and the MC or the opening act, and, you know, the headliner would get the most and then the club would take their cut right off the top. And so I'm back in the office making up these envelopes of cash and there's a knock on the door. And I open the door and there's Robin. And yeah, I know what he's looking for. So I made a fuck, you know, I made a phone call. And uh, you know, our guy is gonna come down, even though he wasn't working the door that night, he's gonna come down and deliver because it's for Robin. So we're waiting uh in the office, and I always kept an extra shirt. Uh, hanging hanging on a nail in a dry cleaner's bag. And Robin sees this shirt that I had hanging there. And it's like this oversized Hawaiian shirt uh, with really cool buttons. I mean, it was a nice shirt. Um, you know, I, and he goes, oh, man, colossal shirt. And I said, oh, thanks, Robin. And he goes, let, let me put it on. I said, what? I, I, and, and he starts putting it on. And then he leaves and he goes on stage for like the next 20 or 30 minutes, uh, even though he, you know, he was completely unannounced. And, I, and then he left and I never got my shirt back. So every time I would see him after that, which was pretty often, I would... You know, say where's where's my where's my effing shirt? And he'd you know always improvise this story about what happened to my shirt. It's like it's like oh I was attacked by dogs, uh, you know. And uh, finally, I stopped asking. And the first time I didn't ask him about the shirt, he's on our stage, and one of our waitresses was in the front row. Uh, taking drink orders from people and writing them down on this pad, you know, this pad of paper. Uh, and Robin is improvising something and he works into the improv uh, 
uh, you know, taking her pad off of her serving tray and her pen and writing something down. Work just works it into what he's improvising and puts it back on her tray and then goes on with what he was doing. And she brings it back to me. And here's this note from Robin. It said to Jim, you give great shirt. And I stood there looking at this piece of paper in my left hand and with, with my right hand, without even looking up from it, I just raised my middle finger and just totally cracked him up, um, you know, which, which is hard to do. It was real hard to do with Robin, but uh, yeah, and I still have that piece of paper. I treasure it. Well, so you... You th that is an epic story unto itself. That is worth reading the book for. Is how you talked about Robin. Um, but you, you know, you said Robin was the real deal. He was, in fact, that man that you saw. He was the kind man with a big heart. Oh, he was. He was uh, exceedingly modest and, and humble, and even after fame, he was very, very kind and. Uh, you know, he, he knew that some, some comics, if he showed up unannounced, you know, there there was a comic on stage or actually a comic waiting to go on stage would think, oh, my God, I've got to follow Robin Williams. But he was exceedingly kind. And, uh, you know, he, he would foster, foster the other comics and, uh, you know, and he would improvise with them. He wouldn't just like try to blow them away. You know, he was uh, he was like a, uh, you know, the godfather of San Francisco comedy at that time. And you you said he was generous. He would give uh, just, you know, where where you would just be astonished at what he would give to people. And that was, you know, uh, from so because I, I remember when I was in eighth grade, I wanted to be a stand up comedian and I spent a lot of time watching these guys, but Robin Williams, you know, he was like, he was the end all be all because of how he operated on his feet. But, uh, you know, you, you said he had the heart that was just untouchable. He was such a great man. Well, you know, he was not only kind to people around us, uh, myself included, but, you know, he would, uh, you know, the club got into a little trouble and couldn't pay the rent and, was in danger of closing down. So Robin quietly just paid the rent uh, for a few months to keep the club going. And, you know, I mean, you know, homeless shelters and the food bank and AIDS research never announced it, never spoke about it, just did it. Didn't want any recognition. And to me, that says everything about, you know, uh, the, the measure of, of a person to do something like that, not wanting anything in return. And that's, that, that makes us miss him so much more to hear that, you know, cause you, you give a personal side of the. Well, you know, I mean, I, I always, not that I really talk about this very much cause you know, it sounds so name droppy, uh, but anyone who has asked me yourself included, you know, I, I always have the same response. He was exactly the person that you think he was. So uh, I'm going to move on to another. I'm going to read a section here. Yeah. Uh, that I that, that this one 
aside from i mean you you saw the beatles live which you know i'm i'm just dying with jealousy even now but uh this line this this section here and uh, towards the end of chapter 10 somehow i became separated from my sister and i was now lost in this sea of people and i was terrified i had no experience with black people having never known any and certainly there were none at my school all I knew was that on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite, they seemed like trouble. Summoning up every ounce of courage, I decided I'd have to walk home through this menacing mass of blackness across Memorial Bridge and all the way to Alexandria, a five-mile hike. I started to wake my, make my way through the crowd toward the Lincoln Memorial and the bridge, but the crowd was so dense around that memorial that I was making little headway. The organizer of the rally was speaking. It was the now famous I Have a Dream speech. And I was there quite by accident in what turned out to be a monumental stroke of good fortune. I was stopped in my tracks. I listened to this master of forensics as all of my fears of these black people who surrounded me melted away. That is poetic, epic, historical, and so powerful. That was just this powerful piece that i mean just the to be there at that moment to have those feelings and have everything shift at such a historical moment that was a pinnacle of american history right there and and you were there at the i have a dream speech um again right place at the right time uh well you know it wasn't it wasn't you know it was not yet considered uh, anything historic or it, it became famous later as the i have a dream speech but but yeah i was there quite by accident yeah that was just how you wrote that how it you know how you just said the 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 feeling of change that you experienced how you said you know you didn't know any black people or anything that was before your high school was integrated which that was also historic as well. We'll get to that in just a moment. But to to have that experience, like you said, what turned out to be a monumental stroke of good fortune. Um, you know, obviously going back and listening to it now probably is just as moving as it was then. Um, I, you know, every time I hear the speech, it makes me rethink, you know, all of that. But that you were there was just a beautiful moment. Um the you went to tc williams high school from that movie remember the titans uh that was yeah. where you got integrated um talk about going down to roanoke redneckistan down there for your well, basketball you know, I, I went there I, I went there when the school had just opened um i, I was in the very first class um to attend that and you know, the T.C. Williams High School uh, was replacing two other schools, one that was for, you know, pretty well off, uh, you know, white kids. And the other one was for poor black kids, pretty much. And they they closed both of those schools and put everybody into this one, you know, gigantic school. So, you know, I had a graduating class of over a thousand people. I mean, there were a lot of kids and it was the first time any of us had ever gone to school with black kids. And, you know, I wasn't raised a racist, but I was raised among them. And like all the other parents were just upset 
but not mine. Um, and I'm watching my white classmates uh, uh, just, you know, give these poor black kids such a hard time. And But uh, what happened uh, was that with two, two, uh, two schools worth of talent to choose from, our, our, you know, our football team and basketball team were both unstoppable because there was so much talent. And, uh, you know, in football, we started to dominate, uh, you know, the entire state and finally made it to the, you know, the statewide playoffs. And uh, which, you know, which is depicted in the movie, uh, you know, Denzel Washington plays the coach, uh, uh, who was actually my phys ed teacher, uh, Coach Boone. We were going to the playoffs, and, and we were playing a school down in southern Virginia, you know, about three hours away, four hours away. Uh, so I, I went on a yellow school bus full of kids down to support our team. And we got there. And, you know, Southern Virginia was a whole different world from Northern Virginia. You know, we got there and there were like these ang this angry mob uh, of white people there to, there to meet us. And they started breaking, you know, this bus with half black kids and half white kids. You know, this mob uh, starts breaking out the windows on the bus with baseball bats and tire irons and yeah, it was uh, it was quite something. Uh, you know, the the movie is actually fairly accurate. Uh, uh, you know, for for Hollywood, uh, but yeah, I, I, that's where I went to high school. Jesus. And uh, you you who you you met a, a, another guy, one of your heroes, who actually played at your school. Talk about that. Would drop. Drop that name for a second, because I mean to have that guy play to your high school alone is, you know, pretty legendary. Well, you know, it's like we were a big high school, and you know, we were fairly, you know, in spite of half the kids being children of poverty, uh, you know, the and the other half being children of privilege. You know, we had a lot of money, and we we had the birds uh, play at my high school. Um, and some years later in a chance encounter, I met, uh, David Crosby, one of the founding members of the birds. And I reminded him, uh, of that. I said, you know, you, when you were in the birds, you, you guys played my high school. It's like 1968, maybe. And, uh, and he goes, Oh, no way. Where, where did you go to high school? And I said, Alexandria, Virginia. And he goes, Oh, TC Williams high school. Now this is David Crosby. Who's been, you know, in, in the bird founding member of the birds in Crosby, Sills and Nash, a uh, solo career, millions of gigs. And he remembers from 30 years before the name of this obscure high school, uh, which became less obscure after that movie came out. But, uh, you know, he nailed it. He remembered the name, name of my high school. Th that alone is a great line. I love that is just so cool. Um, a great experience there. And uh, I mean, 
just you know legend of david crosby that but that he he still remembered that moment you know that he played at your high school with uh, yeah it was, it was it was impressive uh you know and he was with uh, three other people and when he when he said the name of my high school my jaw just dropped and he looks around at his fr- you know his wife and uh another couple there with and he goes ha who's fried you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he'd, uh, he'd been suffering, uh, the reputation of, uh, you know, his people thought his brains were pretty scrambled, but he, he that guy was sharp as a tack. Well, yeah, his drug use had been legendary for a long time. I remember, watching, yeah. I remember watching Graham Nash tear into him one time in a documentary, um, you know, but, uh, quite a legendary guy there. Um, what about, what, talk about the, the earthquake again, another historical moment uh, of the San Francisco world, you know, the history of the city, but, uh, just t- talk about that for a second. Well, you know, by 1989, I, I'd had a real tough decade, you know, the eighties were, you know, I'd gotten myself fired from the comedy club and I was massively addicted to cocaine and, you know, my life was falling apart. Uh, to be to be honest, uh, and uh, you know, I kicked around San Francisco in the Haight Ashbury for you know one living situation after another that didn't work out, and I you know with each change in living arrangements, I I, I downgraded every time, uh, settling for people that would take a roommate that had no money and was a drug addict, and by 1989. I was living with yet another house full of hippies, but, you know, these weren't like the original hippies that I first lived with. You know, those ones were true hippies and, you know, they're industrious and hardworking and, you know, and responsible and healthy. And uh, those were the real hippies. These hippies, they were disciples of a, uh, you know, they're, they're all addicted to drugs which is why they would take me into their living situation. Uh, but they were disciples of a cult uh, guru uh, by the name of Raj Nish. In October of 89, I was in this uh, ramshackled Victorian building and suddenly, you know, yet another earthquake. I mean, I felt a few since I'd lived here and they were, you know, they were all mild and, you know, kind of cute. Well, that's how this one started out, but it kept building and building and building in intensity. And before you knew it, the building that I was in was shaking so violently, I could not stand on my feet. And I had been, well, you know, to be honest, uh, I was having sex when it hit. And, you know, you could say that uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake of 1989, you know, caught me with my pants down. And uh, it took a minute to realize what was happening. And as soon as I did, uh, I grabbed my girlfriend and my clothes and my wallet and, and I was out the door, was out of yet another place to live. Uh, because the place became uninhabitable during that earthquake. A, a water main broke above us and caused our ceiling to collapse. And, 
you know, I had no place to go. But fortunately, I moved into my current house uh, right after that. And I'm still here over 30 years later. And I remember you talking about how, you know, by the time it went, you know, it was dark and there was nothing. You couldn't see anything except, you know, police lights or the fires or whatever. And uh... Yeah, well, I went up on the roof of the building and you, normally you would see all the city lights, uh, you know, and it was completely pitch black everywhere. And, you know, the sound of sirens coming from every quarter. And uh, but there was a huge orange glow to the north and that was a whole neighborhood burning down, a uh, neighborhood called the Marina. But I, you know, I didn't know about the freeways collapsing or the bridge breaking or anything uh, because we had no electricity and therefore no news. No one had a cell phone. The Internet was invented that year, so no one had the Internet. You know, it took me three days to find a working phone to call my mother in, in Washington, D.C., and she was telling me of, of, about the freeways collapsing, and we had no idea. You know, the world knew about it, but we didn't. And how has, I mean, you were on the inside looking out. You were on the inside looking in and still didn't know. That was... Uh, yeah. So... Yeah. I... Again, yet another moment in history. I remember seeing it on the news and seeing the devastation of the freeway section that collapsed and it killed all those people and and that the fires were so bad. And, you know, like and I told you before in my we watched it in my my uh, LDS seminary class. That's where we would take, you know, time out during the day to learn about God and the, the Mormon scripture and all that. But they showed that to us and we're like, oh. Look, the Berlin Wall just came down, and now this, you know, I, I remember this is the end of the world, guys. It's all going to happen. Jesus is going to be here soon, and, yeah, we're, we're still 30 years on from that. But I do remember that moment. Let's go to, let's, we're coming up on the time here, but I, I want everybody to really just think about this book. It, it, it doesn't just cover the world of San Francisco. It talks about just the, the disease of televised culture. That that's what I would call the televised culture we live in today across America. Um, uh, like, let's go to chapter 20. And if you could pick up with the word genius, where it says genius, and then go all the way to the end of chapter 20, if you could, Jim. Genius is a word that can't be thrown around lightly. We can lower and have lowered the bar on some exalted terminology, for for example, in who we refer to as a star, but genius is untouchable. Anyone can be a star in America. People are now famous simply for being famous. We've gone from Bogart and Sinatra to, to Paris Hilton and the Kardashians, diluting that term to the point where it's so watered down that it, me that it means nothing. This is what has gone wrong with our country, the watering down. No one reads. Kids no longer go outside. Poverty, ignorance, and crime are rampant. Rock stars are chosen on game shows. And any inbred pinhead can now become the president of the United States. Let's face it. Things have changed in America, and you don't have to be very talented to, to become a star. And you don't need to be very smart to drive a car, buy a gun, have children, vote, succeed, or even become the president. 
there's something wrong in this. But there are always going to be those who recognize what is wrong, and they gather together, taking umbrage to this affront. And I need to be where the firebrands are, the ones who speak out and band together with the common goal of advancing civilization. I needed to be in a flash, flashpoint city of smart, angry, talented people. So I came to, back to San Francisco. The Haight-Ashbury was where I needed to be. Revolution was still in the air, and I could feel it. Wow. It, I, that section of the book probably spoke the hardest to me. Spoke the most powerful to me. Just it, you, you collected the thoughts of, you know, and you, you, you were able to pull the thoughts together that I was able to go, yeah, I get that. I agree with that, you know, and it, it was just a, it, it just was very moving going through that section. And that was probably, yeah, the, the, the loudest part of the book that spoke to me was here in chapter 20. Well, you know, I, I agree with uh, Jello Biafra and Ray named their band the Dead Kennedys because they considered the, the, the shooting of John Kennedy to be where America really started to unravel. And part of me agrees with that, but I also think that America has always been, you know, based on uh, enslavement and genocide and land theft. Uh, but, you know, the, the Kennedy assassination happened during my watch. And, and I think that's such a brilliant name for that band because, you know, the dead Kennedys uh, kind of shine a spotlight on all that's gone off the rails. Uh, and I, I happen to agree with every bit of it. You know, they do it with a sense of humor, but, uh, but it's true. <laughs> I, I think that my generation uh, was right about a lot of things. Uh, unfortunately, some some things we're still talking about, but I, th I think that my generation started a conversation uh, that needs to continue. Unfortunately, it needs to continue. It should have been done. You know, these. Why, why are we still fighting these? You know, why are we still dealing with this? It reminded me of uh, when when I lived in East Germany. There was a bus stop that we were at. We'd go to this bus stop, and then there was a little like little ditch, like a canal. And then right on the other side of that was this field and it was barbed wired off big time. And I, I asked uh, my mission companion there, you, you know, the, the geeky Mormon guys riding around white shirts, ties, all that. And I said, why is this roped off? Why is this chained off with all the barbed wire still? And he said that uh, the, that field was a landmine that the Russians had laid down. And uh, the Russians never kept maps of where they placed them, according to the Geneva Convention. And uh, several years ago, some kids went in that field and died. You know, I remember thinking th the same thing that day that, you know, when I was reading your book, it came up. Why are we still fighting? Why, why are people still dying uh, from the ghosts of these these wars that were over that that mm -hmm. had been fought and done? But we're still we're still dealing with it. We're still having the casualties of it. It's never really gone away. And uh, I I really that was something that I, I really took from your book. But you reminded me of that moment so many times in this book that, damn, why are we still fighting these battles? 
Uh, is it, we're coming up on time here. I just want to say, if you got uh, one last piece you want to say to the world, you've got some, everybody, this book, An American Feast by Jim Boldman. It's, uh, sorry, James Dean Boldman. Anyway, you've got to get this book. It's just tells a wonderful story, some fun moments, historical, and just things to make you laugh and to, you know, just make your guts rich too. You, you tell it all in there. You, you didn't pull any punches on this one. But uh, what, what would your last uh, piece of hope want to be? What would you want to say here, Jim? Well, you know, I, I think that my book, uh, while it's full of full of drug use, uh, <clears throat> is really a cautionary tale. I, I, I do uh, overcome that, <clears throat> overcome that uh, in the end, but it's also about hope. Uh, you know, I have tremendous hopes for the country. I have tremendous hopes for San Francisco. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I said, I, I, I agree with uh, uh, Jello Biafra's assessment that, uh, you know, I, a lot of our biggest problems started with the Kennedy killing. I don't think there are any heroes, but I, I think that each of us can be a hero. It's hard to change the world. Uh, although I think my generation did stop the war and did open a dialogue on, on a lot of things like uh, LBGQ rights. And it's, it's, hard, it's hard to change the world. But, you know, if you change your little piece of it, that's, that's a start. And, and, you know, everybody needs to be kind and, and uh, speak, speak the truth. And if enough people do that, well, you know, maybe it, it, it will become a movement uh, and maybe that's the way to change the world. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you for your time and everybody else. Thank you for listening in. And please go grab the book, An American Feast. It was a page turner. The first time I read through was the, the clicker because I had the digital copy. It is up on Amazon as well. And uh, everybody else. Enjoy, take care, be good to each other, and let music do awesome in your lives. And that ties up this week, everybody. That was James Dean Boldman, the author of the amazing book on Americana called uh, An American Feast. So go out and get that, everybody. It's a pretty moving piece of literature. Now, we'll play this one out by Fury in the Slaughterhouse. The song is called Time to Wonder. Pay no attention to the name, everybody. Just absorb the message. We're always moving circles in a world of ours and days. We've got bones and blood. Where's the What we've got. I thought there was a brain, but maybe I just thought I'm there. This is not the time to wonder, and this is not the time to cry. And this is not the time to sleep while we fight, and this is not the time to die. Reality. It's not the way we want it, it's just the way